2, starting in verse 14. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? It is certainly a blessing to be here this morning. Uh, despite the specific circumstances, I am very uh, grateful. Uh, I think uh, this thing I said during the Bible class, this was probably my third trip to uh, Rosenberg in less than 10 days, and uh, it has been uh, delightful every time. Uh, the uh, uh, generosity and the kindness, the open hearts, um, it is amazing, and I'll probably say this on a number of occasions, uh, but I will uh, state it now. Um, in looking at coming to work with Graber Road, I know that one of the uh, elders' jobs is to uh, find uh, out what's wrong with you, and I know they've done uh, done that. And and uh, one of the the person who's looking at uh, the potential job is to find out what's wrong with you. And brethren, I haven't talked to anybody who's found a, a, a discouraging say, thing to say about Graber Road. And, and I say that with all, with all earnestness and, and, and honesty. Everybody that I've talked to from, uh, uh, I know we have mutual acquaintances in Mike Vestal, to the elders at Southwest, the congregation there, the school absolutely loves Graber Road, um, to uh, uh, people in, uh, in the past who served here in, in, in the past. Uh, everybody says Graber Road is a wonderful and encouraging group of folks that love God and love his word. And uh, that's wonderful. That's exciting, and uh, I am, and Lacey is excited to move here when we can. Uh, she wanted to be here this morning when I told her I'm coming, but uh, she is in Midland, uh, again mentioned during the Bible class, picking out a wedding dress or getting some ideas for one this week uh, for our marriage in October, um, but Lord willing, next time uh, I'm here, she will also be able to be here whenever uh, we might have that opportunity. Lots of transition coming up. And it made me think of the idea, it, it sure was nice being a kid. Ha, have you ever longed for simpler days? Uh, in fact, some people, you've heard the phrase, oh, the good old days. Back when, and then they'll say whatever time period, they thought that was the pinnacle of when time was peaceful, things were easy, uh, uh, maybe you had more money, things were paid off, whatever it might be, the good old days. Uh, some people now uh, call it uh, B.C., and A.D., before Corona and after Donald. I mean, there's just uh, all sorts of different uh, ways people describe the current uh, climate. Uh, you have some people that uh, uh, will say, oh, to be young again, or I wish I were a kid again. Things were so much easier. Things were so much easier as a kid. My greatest worry as a kid was is there a branch low enough for me to grab onto and start climbing that tree? 
Or how can I get on top of that roof? I climbed a lot and uh, got hurt a lot too. I hear one that is uh, particularly interesting to me today uh, that I see a whole lot on social media. Adulting is hard. Adulting is hard, turning, the, uh, uh, turning that word into, into a verb, but uh, it, it really is. Do you ever long for simpler times? I, I know that it's, it's easy to, to, to do that, and I know it's easy to, to build up the past, and the past had some great things, and, and sometimes you wonder about the first century Christians maybe, or at least I do, I wonder if they ever longed for the past. We don't have to wonder very much because you have books in the New Testament that seem to indicate that there was a struggle with longing for the past that could not be gone back to. In fact, the entire book of Hebrews is written as an encouragement to show these Christians who had come out of Judaism that Christ is better and you can't go back. In the book of Galatians, people are trying to bring in things of that old law and to bind that old law, but but you can't go back. And, and the early Christians, when you consider these people who left the comfort of Judaism, which at that time was an authorized religion by the Roman government for something that was, although connected historically and theologically, was incredibly different. Incredibly different than what they were used to. You know, before they became Christians, there wasn't a dispersion that was caused due to persecution. In fact, when you look at the way the book of James opens, notice James 1, in verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Notice there's a dispersion going on. And dispersion typically doesn't happen unless there's some sort of persecution, right? I was told this morning that it's not the typical weather here with some uh, uh, sand coming over from across the ocean to visit us. So it sounds like several people have uh, tickles in their, in their throats this morning. I'll join you on that one. But notice that they had this dispor- dispersion. Did they long for easier days? You know, you would go to the synagogue. You would teach, and if you did well, people would follow you. Your, your clothing was cool and showcased your Jewish faith. Uh, maybe you, you had the, these broad phylacteries. Everybody knew who you were. And if that weren't enough, it was pretty easy in the first century to self-justify and look down at Samaritans and Gentiles. But now... But now you are striving to live in an incredibly different life that seeks to honor God and draw others nearer to him. And the book of James is one of the most practical, down-to-earth, get-your-hands-dirty-and-your-heart-clean books in the New Testament. In fact, it's been called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's characterized as the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the, the Sermon uh, on the Mount expanded. And, and you ask the question, how? How do we live a life that seeks to honor God and draw others near to Him? And I want to ask that question kind of in a little bit different way. What, what does God want our faith to look like? You know, there's a lot of different ways people like to define faith. 
Some folks really like to go to the Greek word and talk about all of the history but behind the Greek word and how sometimes it's translated faith and other times it's translated belief or believes or something along those lines. Um, Others will go to various examples in the Old Testament. In fact, you look at Hebrews 11 and all of those examples of living faith Sometimes you'll go to Hebrews 11, uh, some like to give this, I don't know if we'd call it a definition, but this picture of faith being the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not uh, seen in Hebrews 11, uh, the first couple of verses. But if we ask the question, what does faith look like? James 2 has a pretty good picture for us. James 2, 14 to 26 in particular is a very well-known passage to us. It shied away from some because of the repeated idea that faith without works is dead. But this morning, for a few moments, I want us to look specifically at 14 through 26 of James 2 with the question in mind, How do we live a life that seeks to honor God and draw others near to him? What does God want our faith to look like? The first one in our scripture reading in 14 through 16, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Notice that faith cares. Think about that for just a moment. Faith cares. I believe there's probably one or two fishermen in this uh, auditorium. I say that uh, not because I've talked to anybody in particular about fishing, you know, actually a little bit with Carrie last night, but uh, I believe there's at least one or two because there always are. You, you know those folks who really enjoy fishing. They have all the gear. They know what the different kinds of bobbers and, and, and different kinds of hooks and even different kinds of fishing are. They know salt water and fresh water and all the different kinds of fish that you find in both. They know when to go, what the weather's like, and what time you need to get there early in the morning as the fish are waking up. They have the greatest radar, maybe, the best boat to get out where they need to go to find their fish. But imagine somebody like that who puts it all in a really nice storage container. And anytime somebody starts talking about fish, they pull out that card that they have renewed every year to be able to fish as much as they want for whatever they want. And they show them and they start showing them all the stuff. Well, when's the last time you went fishing? Oh, probably about 30 years now. We'd think they're a little confused. We thought you loved fishing. You spend all of this money and all of this time and all of this focus on fishing. What good would it be to have all of that stuff and then, don't, and then never use it? You know, James here, he asks three rhetorical questions to prove his point about faith and works. To prove his point about faith. He says, what good is it if someone says he has faith but does not have works? He says, what good is it? And then he gives The second question, can that faith save him? Notice, what good is it? 
Can it save him? There is a direct connection between is it good and does it save? Is it good? Does it save? And then notice the third. He gives the example, of the, and it's a, another rhetorical question. If a brother or sister is destitute, if they have need of daily food, and you know, you're even kind to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled. You encourage them, brother, I'm praying for you. But you don't give them the things needed for the body. What good is that? Notice twice he asks, what good? What good is it to say that we have faith but not have works? What good is it to say good things to people but then not follow up with what is needed? What good is it? Can that faith save him? Notice that there is a tension then between good faith and bad faith. Although he doesn't say this is bad faith, I think it's pretty clear in the rhetorical question. That's bad faith. We wouldn't have any respect for somebody who has the ability and the means to take care of somebody who comes to them and asks for help and they say, nah, I don't care. Good faith cares about brethren and responds to them with an open heart and open hands. So in asking our question, what does good practical faith in God look like? Number one, practical faith in God cares for others and especially brethren. Practical God, or practical faith cares uh, for others, and especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Isn't that what James is saying here? Notice the next verse, and this is number two, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith also, or also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In fact, he repeats something very similar in verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, James says, is dead. Not only is one's faith not good, if they are uncaring, if they aren't helping, if they aren't doing what they can with those whom they have this opportunity. But notice that, that it's dead. It, it's lifeless. Faith by itself is only that. Itself. And if you think about life, people have faith in a whole lot of things. And that's all they do is they have faith in it. Right? No. You know, even people who, who believe and trust in other things, they spend their time and their attention and their focus. It's not just that, oh, I believe that this is, but we do have those, don't we? I believe that this is what's best to do with money, but then they never do anything good with money. I believe this is how you would save, but then they don't save. Faith by itself, just because you believe, having this idea of faith, and that's it. The Bible has never had that idea. Faith is codependent, we might say. 
It's co-dependent on works. You cannot have one and not have the other and be in a, in a right relationship with God. In fact, both are absolutely necessary. When you think about the idea of believing in God but then saying, I'm not going to do what he says, doesn't that sound like a parable that Jesus taught where one son says, oh Lord, I'll do it, and then he doesn't, and then the other says, oh, I'm not going to, but then later he regrets and repents and does? Doesn't Jesus ask the question to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which son uh, did the Father's will? And they said, the second. The second son. It makes no sense to trust in what he says and then fail to, to, to just do what he says. I believe in God. Great. That's great. But notice the questions again that, that uh, uh, James is asking when he points to this example of a brother or a sister that's lacking that needs help, that needs something. And the brother or sister who could provide that and they just, no. He says that faith is alone. That faith is by itself. And that faith is dead. So number one, faith cares. What does a living, active, practical faith toward God look like? Number one, it cares. And number two, it cooperates. Faith does not act alone because if it's acting, then it's not alone. Faith cooperates with work. It expresses itself. It has action. It does what God intended it to do. But third, notice verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Notice this third one. Faith shows and tells. Faith shows and tells. Faith cares. Faith cooperates. Faith shows and tells tells. And it's really interesting here. You have faith and I have works. Maybe there's going to be some folks who say, well, I do a lot of good things, but I'm not all into that whole God scene. But if there is a God, you know, he'll justify me by my works. That's definitely true. But Jesus also said, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. You have, you have faith, and I, and I have works. We're keeping those totally and completely separate. I'm a great person. I'm a good person. I'm not a bad, I don't murder, I don't steal, I don't I'll do all these things that you see on TV. Or how about the flip side of that? Somebody who has all of the Bible memorized, somebody who has all of those facts and figures down, somebody who can just, uh, if you say a song number, they know the song. But it never gets beyond that kind of knowledge. And it never has the changing effect in life that the word of God is intended to have. And it's all just facts and figures. It's all about the, the uh, idea of being smart and knowing all the stuff. 
but never making any true and real commitment to God. The person who says he has all the faith because he has all the knowledge and he, he believes in God, but all that stuff that Christians do, no, that's, that's not for me. I'm busy, and, and our world really is busy. Uh, even in the last year when you've had all of the difficulty and struggle, one of the things that didn't change was busyness. It just changed form from uh, uh, on the road, in person, to online and out of control. Uh, it has just gone crazy with how busy people are. I don't have time for it. But James says, if you really want to see faith, if you really want to, and, and remember how James opens, by the way. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, know, uh, knowing, uh, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. Notice that it's a trial of faith. And in fact, chapter 2, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Notice it's all about faith. How do you live out your faith in trial? How do you live out your faith with others? How do you live out your faith with the tongue that you'll see a little bit later in James? And really all through James you see a whole lot about the tongue. How do you live your, live your faith in the midst of a world that is so full of itself that it can't have anything else in it? How do you live your faith and still live life? How do you live your faith in suffering? And James says that true biblical God-honoring faith, the faith that looks to God and trusts in Him, it cares about one another. It cooperates with works. It is coordinating with works. It's codependent on works. And faith shows and tells. Perhaps the most important thing that you'll do is tell somebody about the wonderful saving message of Jesus Christ. But perhaps the most important thing you'll do is to let that person know that you're a Christian by your love. We sing a song sometimes, they'll know we are Christians by our loves. You know that comes from John 17, right? Where Jesus prays for unity and that the people around, the people in the world will know that we are Christians by our united love together. Faith shows and tells. It is visible it is active. How can we show faith without any kind of work? And you know, really, wouldn't that make life a lot easier if we could just secretly believe in God but never do anything about it? You wouldn't have any kind of uh, stress from the world because as far as they know, you're just like them. The only difference is you believe in a higher power. But that's really not, I guess in the long run you'd say that's not easier at all. 
practical faith in God. It shows and tells. And then verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Number four, faith responds appropriately. Faith responds appropriately. You know, James really did have a knack to getting straight to the point if the practical example of caring for your brother didn't work and just simply declaring that faith without works is dead didn't work. And if he says, how ridiculous is it to believe that one has faith and another has works, that you have to show your faith by your works doesn't work, then he gets down and he hits hard, making the difficult, direct point that really is one of the most obvious revelations that, that James has made so far in the book. You believe in God? Wonderful. Even the demons believe and shudder. There are some demons who trust in God and respond to Him more appropriately than some people. And you think about this idea, whenever Jesus was around and one of those people who were possessed knew it, the demon had that person that made him go over, what would you have to do with me, son of the most high? And they would obey. They were fearful. They were frightened of Jesus they were frightened because they knew who they were and what they had done and they knew who Jesus is and what he can do it's ridiculous James says to, to, to have faith and, 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 and that's it that doesn't work it might be easier, it might be like going back to the old days where you could pretend to do this but have all the outward appearance of Judaism. Instead, the persecution would stop, the fighting would stop, the frustration would stop, the heartache would stop. He said, but it means you don't care. It means you're stagnant and your faith is dead. And it means you're about on the same level as a demon. That hurts. The amazing thing is that our faith never has to stagnate, stagnate to just knowing about God. But can grow to knowing God more fully each and every day. You see, it's not just belief you realize that the, the idea of just belief cheapens faith? Oh, it's just belief. It's just, it's just that. But vibrant, rich, and life-changing faith is available to all if we give our all. Isn't that what Romans 12, 1 and 2 would say? Presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice. Being conformed not to this world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds so that we can prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God in Christ Jesus. 
What does practical faith in God look like? Practical faith responds to God appropriately. And finally, number five, faith works. As a double meaning, number one, faith works, and number two, faith works. Take that how you will. Faith works. Look at 20 through the end of the chapter. Do you not want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Notice he goes to, again, think about the background of the people that had come out of Judaism. James uses their example, Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith. Father Abraham had many sons, and I'm one of them, they could sing. And he uses him as the example of this is what it means to have God trusting, honoring, active faith that's full of life. Offering his son Isaac on the altar. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. The person is justified by his works. And not by faith alone. But then he gives a second example. And in the same way. Think about that for just a moment. The same way that Abraham who offered his only son Isaac on the altar. And had this altar erected that when right before the knife falls. God stops him. And a ram comes out of the thicket. And he offers that and the place is called. The Lord will provide. And that's a powerful statement happening on a mountain that just so happened to be on the same kind of mountain area in which the Lord would stop his judgment of Israel uh, near or in David's reign and he would buy a threshing floor. Same area. And that threshing floor would later be the place for the house of God, the temple. Where sacrifices would be made to get uh, to God and respond to him. That same mountain area. And isn't it amazing where the Lord provided a way for Abraham and his son to survive as one and only son that Abraham had given. And that the Lord stopped his judgment on a threshing floor where the wheat and the chaff are separated. And he had his temple built there where man and God could commune again and then later in time on a place very near same mountain area but we'd call it Mount Golgotha where he would sacrifice his son his one and only son and it's at the cross where the wheat and the tares will be separated really because it's at the cross where that division is made what side will we stand on You have Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, that amazing picture of him sacrificing his son and God. You believe. And he stopped his son from dying. 
And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now I want you to think about, again, the, the audience. Jewish converts coming out of Judaism and, and that, just the culture at the time. Notice the comparison in the same way. You have on the one hand the father of the Jewish faith and on the other Rahab the prostitute. You have on the one hand this man who was instrumental and promised to God that all the nations of the earth will be blessed and you have a Gentile. And you have a male leader and a woman. If you're looking for contrasts, it's hard to find a, a better one. But James' focus isn't on the contrast, but he wants you to get the point. What do Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith, the faithful and Rahab, who, yes, well, you, know, you can talk about her repentance, but this is what she was known for. What do they have in common? They were justified their faith was gold. Their faith was visible. It was active. It cared. It lived. One other thing to point out. Turn to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. You're giving Jesus' genealogy, and you see major sections in it. In the first major section, you have Abraham and Rahab, both faithful, both in that line, for the promised son. What kind of faith glorifies God? A working faith that trusts in God to fulfill his promises and submits to him in love and humility. That's why faith works. That's why faith works. The simple question this morning that I have for, for all of us is, is how is our faith? How is our faith this morning? Is it practical? Is it caring? Is it active? Is it visible? Is your faith working? You know, only faith in God and his promises and reacting responsibly to him is a good and successful faith in his sight. Going to offer an invitation. I'm sure that is something that is done here. Um, and you all know what it is who are normally here.
but it's an invitation that really is open to all. And the question is, how is your faith? Can we encourage it, encourage it in any way today? If we can help you to draw nearer to God, I already know that Graber Road wants to help you do that. Just the few times I've been here, I can see that already. Does your faith respond in such a way that wants to glorify Him? Is there something in your life that you want us to pray with you for? Is there some way that we can help you? We would love to do so. How is your faith in Christ? Do you trust in Him to save you? He promises that He will. He promises that through His Word that, that if you believe in Him, if you have faith in Him, that if you trust in Him, if you'll confess that His name, and if you trust in Him to know what's best for you, that you would turn away from your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins. He promises you that you contact His blood, Romans 6, 1-4. And in contacting His blood, you become washed whiter than snow. To live a new life of faith. A faith that's founded not on the empty promises and hopes of the world, but stands on the promises of God and trusts in His name and responds accordingly. Can we help you as we stand and sing?